Well, I'm gonna just give a very brief intro and we'll roll. Oh, look at that, shades on and everything. Aaron is in Seattle, folks. I know this is hard it's to believe. Summer! What you would think, but um, yeah. It is, it's summer in March. It's yeah. be, It's like, argue, what is it, 50 something degrees out there? That's basically summer. Yeah, I think so, about that. Um, yeah, 54 degrees, that's summertime. Um, so, Erin uh, James is my guest today. Uh, super thrilled to have her here. Erin is an author and writer uh, and general knower of lots of things about wine, uh, Washington wine, I feel like, and, well, Pacific Northwest wine, I should say, uh, in particular given her years as editor in chief at Pacific Northwest, uh, but wine in general. and. We're going to at least start out by talking some Washington wine stuff and then uh, maybe kind of move outwards from there. But obviously, as was always the case with these salons, if you all have questions, comments, whatever, please feel free to chime in. Aaron and I can certainly talk for an hour, but uh, if you all want to participate, that's super fun too. Um, so Aaron, let's start real quick. What are you drinking? Um, <clears throat> I am drinking and why am I Mr. Pink, which... Uh, Full disclosure is my husband's winery. Um, it's the Underground Wine Project. It's a collaboration between uh, Mark McNeely of Mark Ryan Winery and uh, Trey Bush of Slant Hand Cellars. Uh, so felt very, other than the fact to be clear, that- To be clear, neither of those people is your husband. Neither of those people are my husband. Um, his name is Nick. He is their uh, sole power of sales and marketing source. Um, just kidding, they're also with like a massive distributor. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's our house wine. It was also one of two Washington wines in the house. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is convenient, but it's great. It's a new vintage and a um, little bit of a plug here. It's delicious. I think it is Syrah and Sangiovese. It's like 12 and a half percent alcohol. It's super quaffable and it's really, really light in color this year, but it's, uh, I like that style, like Provence Rosé being nice and light and citrusy. So it's kind of my jam. Cool. What are you drinking? I have uh, some 2010 Cabernet Franc from Andrew Will. Um, we're having some red meat tonight so this seemed like the right thing and and i wasn't just confident in the uh weather gods delivering a sunny seattle march day so figured we'd plan on plan on some red wine and this would give us a few things to talk about if you all want to uh want to mention what you're drinking if you're drinking something uh in chat that's always fun to see what everyone has open um and this one is like i mean two well we might talk about this a little bit but 2010 and 2011 are two vintages in washington for reds in particular that I think are really spectacular and really were kind of underappreciated in their days. Um, it, like as often happens in the wine industry, I feel like a, a lot, the vintages that people rate as poor are the cooler vintages. Um, but really what that means is if you knew what you were doing as a grower, winemaker, et cetera, you probably actually were able to make some really excellent wine. Maybe you didn't make quite as much as in warmer vintages, but, um, and you made wines that didn't always show at their absolute best right upon release, but have developed really beautifully. And this is certainly tasting quite good. So those wines well, are fantastic too. Yeah. I haven't had them in forever. I, I don't see them here on the mainland too often. So I'm Vashon, right? 
Yeah, the winery is out on Vashon. Um, although um, I have sympathy for Will Camarda, uh, who's the, you know, more or less, well, he and his dad kind of run it jointly, but Chris, I think, is, is a little more step back these days. And Will lives in Seattle, lives actually on Queen Anne. So he goes back and forth to Vashon, I don't know if every day, but most days. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, I don't know. I mean, I feel like they're around, but, but you know, it's also, this is a time where things are so strange with find, you know, so many of us, I think, have been, you know, maybe, like, I don't go browse wine shops anymore, um, right. obviously, like, not such a, a, an acceptable pastime, at least right now. Um, but I definitely think... Uh, they're they're available and if you need some you know we can i can put you in touch with will i'm pretty sure he knows who you are <laughs> it's uh, weird you say that because i was i was gonna go i just ran out of time today but i was gonna swing down to uh s because it's like four minutes from my house mm -hmm. um and i love walking through a wine shop and i feel relatively comfortable with a mask on and wine shops people keep their space anyway <laughs> so it's like unless you unless you need help like you can go look at so many different options i love i love doing i'm a, i'm also like a i'm a bookstore shopper too so mm -hmm. i'll go and like just stand in aisles forever in bookstores so i think it's a similar mindset i also enjoy greeting card sections those are also really fun um but yeah i love that about a wine shop and i hope that i hope to see so many of our local sh wine shops survive with yeah. maybe well i think I mean, for retail, it's been a lot less painful. I mean, even for those, I mean, depending on, you know, I think maybe a little bit depending on your situation, but, but even those that I'm aware of that don't have a strong online presence, you know, if you have a, a loyal-ish clientele, you know, people are still drinking wine. And so it's not as if, and they're, and they're only drinking wine or largely only drinking wine at home. So, mm -hmm. so a, whether it's a grocery store or a wine shop or whatever, is whether they're only or you know online purchases or whatever or i come drive to your house in some cases for those people out here uh you know i uh that's kind of your source for wine you're not going to restaurants much or you know maybe some people have been a little bit or will start to going forward but yeah i mean i think it's that you know even the shops i've been in that have been open you know some i think have been closed you know, have kind of just been doing delivery and and pickup and stuff like that but even the ones that are open at least to this point, I have been, you know, yeah, it's, I, for me, at least it's been a little less um, since I have had to be like, okay, you know, how long do I want to be in here? Are there too many other people? It has taken some of the, like, yeah, the, the joy that I certainly also share of just kind of like browsing through. So Aaron, I want to ask you um, just on, on the Washington wine topic, because you've been working in and around the Washington wine industry for quite some time now. And, and one of the things I wanted to, to talk about in this uh, salon was a little bit about how or, or ways in which you and I, I think, and, and everyone else, of course, please feel free to, to give your thoughts, how wine in Washington has evolved. And obviously, there's a lot of different ways to, to get to that answer. But I guess I wanted to start by asking you, like, do you feel like it has changed meaningfully um, in the, you know, last 10 to 15 years and and maybe if so how um yeah i, I would say i think it's changed me excuse me i have a plane flying overhead um i think it's changed in the last i would say like seven to eight years uh zoom's asking me if i'm playing music 
<laughs> nope, just an airplane. Um, yeah, I would say it's changed in the past seven to eight years most dramatically, and I think that's because it's it's more recognized on a national scale. And you'll hear a lot of the the people that, from the Washington Wine Commission or people that have been in the Washington wine industry forever, and I think it's a Bob Betts story of when he was with Chateau Saint-Michel and they went to go present uh, wines in D.C. or New York and um, was talking about how this is from Washington and they didn't realize that they needed to say Washington State because they were like, oh, well, like, where are the vineyards near the Potomac? So it was just like one of those realizations from that was 20 some years, probably 30 years, 20 some years ago. And now people, I think, God, this guy's killing me. <laughs> uh, now people, I think, so recognize the West Coast for being an area of wine. Um, and, and Washington wine is huge in random places like, I don't know, Minnesota. And it's huge. It's, I know this for a fact, it's huge in Texas. Like, Texans love Washington wine, like, and that's great. I think that that's been the most, uh, I think that's been the largest and most impactful development in the last last 10 years is the national recognition. But I also think that, I mean, as grape growing regions get older and grow uh, more mature and vines grow mature and, and gain age and gain concentration and I, I don't know, roots, I guess, in both ways um the wines evolve too and i think that you're seeing older vineyards we are seeing older vineyards in this state and um more complexities coming out of the wines but and i also feel like there's been like a pause on like a new winery a new winery a new winery which is good um because we we have a lot and that's great but now it's more like focusing in and those those wineries growing up and um becoming truer to, to their own philosophies and their own styles versus kind of a new one popping up on every corner, which beer is still doing. And I don't get how that works still, but yeah. it's like Starbucks, you know? Well, I think with the, the point you make about new wineries is a really interesting one, because I think one thing that I've seen is that wineries, the wineries that do open now often are not you know, there was a period of time when every new winery that opened, it felt like had a very similar um, sort of, at least initial um, kind of set of wines, um, you know, same same varieties, same styles, kind of. It's kind of like what happened, I think, you know, you and I also lived through this in the early days of craft distilling, kind of being permitted again in, in the U.S. You know, you got, suddenly there were 10 new distilleries and all of them, you know, we're like, here's our new vodka. And then yes, two and years later, in vodka. <laughs> yeah. yeah and then here's our next a year and a half later, here's our gin. Now here's our whiskey. You know, it was like, yeah. everyone was at the same place. And with wine, it was like, okay, you know, we're, we're a new winery and we're focused on Bordeaux varieties. And you're just kind of like, okay, but that, you know, we are now at a place in Washington where there are literally hundreds of wineries that make that, you know, wines in that, broad paradigm and so what's been exciting for me is newer wineries that are like you know we don't make Cabernet Sauvignon we make you know Syrah or we make um, you know we make uh, Grenache or we make sparkling wine or we make you know all kinds of weird shit and that to me remains one of the like 
I'm curious your thoughts on this, Aaron. Like, I think, you know, you mentioned the Wine Commission. Obviously, you know, you and I both know lots of people who work there. One of the things that I feel like they, blessing and curse for them is that Washington is very hard to pigeonhole. Um, And while obviously Cabernet Sauvignon is the most planted grape and the sort of most generally lauded um, in terms of like critic scores and stuff like that, it is still not as dominant a variety as Cabernet Sauvignon is in Napa Valley or Pinot Noir is in the Willamette Valley or whatever, you know, Washington has a diversity. And while that can be hard when you're trying to tell a story to people who have no familiarity here, it does also mean that there's, you know, kind of, there's almost every style of wine imaginable being made here. Are there, are there some newer wineries that you're excited about? Sure. I, I think honestly what I'm most excited about is how I, I feel like AVAs are, are popping up like they're like being dished out like hotcakes and which is great because to go with like the wide diversity of grape varieties grown in the state and not being able to kind of pigeonhole Washington in a positive light like there's so many <clears throat> sub appellations that are coming out and becoming their own appellation because the wine's from that specific area and in so many cases like only so many hundred of acres uh are distinctly different than ones across the street and i I love that i think that's so important to um building identity for washington wine and for all of the avas like that that to me is really exciting um and then from there what the wineries do with it like i just i um just came out yesterday, the new issue of SIP Northwest, and I wrote a story on the rocks, AVA of Milton Freewater, which is t- is technically in Oregon, not technically, it is in Oregon, yeah. um, but it's a sub-appellation of the Wash- or of Walla Walla Valley, which is in both states, but an AVA of Washington. So yeah. like super confusing, but the reason w- what's cool about it is that it's such a distinctly different, like completely singular uh, Appalachian and it's been within the Walla Walla Valley and I mean uh, Christoph Barone right from yep. Cayuse uh, was the guy who kind of really put it on the map um, and it's just it's crazy like going and seeing places like that like they're it's it's called the rocks because there are rocks like literally this big they're the size of your head it's awesome and if you go to places like I mean it's often compared well, paralleled to um, Chateauneuf de Pop in France, and that's uh, and where they do have those huge rocky uh, gravel soils like that too. And it's just so distinctly different. And you drive another four miles back into Walla Walla proper, and it, the soil is completely different. Yeah. So like that's like I just talked to a geologist for, uh, who wrote the petition for the. So that's what I do. I just talked to the geologist because that's fun. Um, but it was, it, it was a great conversation. Yeah. He was super excited. He really likes dirt. Is that, is that Kevin Pogue or is that someone else? Um, I oh God, Alan, um, he, something he's written like seven of the 12 ABAs or something like that. Um, and he, uh, he, we were talking about, um, Royal Slope. And so, which is like it, that, a region that's kind of defined by two vineyards, Lawrence Vineyard and Stillwater Creek. Um, and seeing w- what makes that one so singular too, because it's like this tiny little hilltop in, in the midst of like a bunch of valleys. So just, we live in such a cool state anyway, being able to get to water in like six minutes, getting into the mountains in 45, like Seattle in particular is really unique for that. But like, there's just so much 
ge geography and geology um, that contribute to the wines that we drink that you don't even think about. And, and all of that makes it so interesting. Yeah. But long story short, I haven't had anything from Valdemar in Walla Walla. <laughs> I would like, I really want to try that. So I want to go and, there. It looks incredible. And Valdemar is actually a cool part of this sort of another really interesting thing that's happened in Washington over the last decade, which is mm -hmm. this real influx of outside money. So you have um, that project, which is a Spanish winemaking family, but like a very large scale wine producing family in Spain. You have the Aquilini Group, um, which is a British Columbia investment concern that planted a ton of acreage on Red Mountain. You have um, like Canvasback, which is Duckhorn and Napa Valley Winery that's established their own property on Red Mountain. Um, you have Trelato that came in and bought clips and it's all, a lot of this is on Red Mountain, but, but you also have some stuff happening in Walla Walla for sure. And I think that's also a really interesting thing where, where some of these um, international companies in some cases are, or, or at least, you know, California-based companies are looking at Washington in the way that you've also seen certainly with Oregon, but Oregon, it happened uh, long, well, it's still happening, but it, it started longer ago. And I think with Washington, maybe it was in part that the reputation wasn't the same or it wasn't as focused, but also that, uh, you know, I mean, it, now it's just that if you want to, if you want land on the West coast, there are parts of California that are still not crazy expensive, but Washington is, you know, you can't buy, you know, acreage in California is expensive. Acreage in the Willamette Valley is expensive. You know, you got to either, you got to, if you want to be in a recognizable ADA on the West Coast, there's not a lot of options outside of Washington anymore that aren't crazy expensive. Well, yeah. And then you need to come in with like Microsoft money and you probably should have done it 10 years ago, but you know, all those things are, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a hot commodity, which for, and for good reason. Like, I mean, going back full circle, like trying trying something from the 2010 vintage or, or any other cooler vintage which i agree is that's a personal favorite of mine i like acid over ripeness personally but i would rather i don't know i it's so cool to be able to try things like that and see and see where the state has come see where these growing regions have come from and and gone to so yeah and you know I, i'm curious too because a, a piece of this story is like we are Sometimes again, you know, the, the challenge of talking about Washington is that there are so many different things going on. There's so many different geographic and geologic pieces to the state. There are lots of different approaches, but are you are there certain varieties that are maybe not, you know, not Cabernet Sauvignon, not, you know, super well known that you're that you generally are excited about? Yeah, I love uh, I'm really into Washington grown rounds. Um, but I'm really specific about that. Like I'm into like lower pH, high acidity. So writing, just finishing up this article on the rocks where that's the reverse, it's lower acidity, super high pH. So they're really ripe wines and you get a lot of minerality on top of that too, um, which I think balance that out for my personal palate. But, um, but I really like, I like high acid straw, high acid Grenache. Um, I, um, I'm, I, I mean, as far as like, I, I just, I'm drawn to Rhone's anyway. That's how I, I when I drink French, it's, well, that's not true. I was gonna say when I drink French, it's Rhone, but that I also drink a lot of Beaujolais and Burgundy. And I think that's what I was trying to talk you into this being about any, our conversation being about our love of white Burgundy. And I'm getting like super geeky on that. Like, don't even get me started on Chardonnay. I love it. 
Well, we can talk about that. I drank some white. I drank some white burgundy last night. So in preparation, I, that's like my grave wine. Like I'm gonna go to the grave, but I can't. But I haven't quite decided like which like subsector of that region I would like to take on. So I don't know. Should we just like it really rings true to me? But I don't know. This well, and it's fascinating because you really, when you look at Chablis versus the, you know, Côte d'Or versus like the Macon, you know, kind of three distinct regions where you see a fair bit of Chardonnay, they are pretty different wines. I mean, they're, you know, we, we kind of broadly lump them together. And even, of course, within, uh, in particular in the Côte d'Or, you have, you know, sort of the at least conception of differences between some of the, the villages. To me, my palate might not be fine enough to par parse some of that out, but I think that, you know, with Chablis, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's one of my absolute favorite categories. I mean, it's what my wife and I served at our wedding, um, or one it's of the, the it's the gateway French Chardonnay. Like, it's like how you yeah. convince people that are like, I don't like Chardonnay, and you're like, well, try Chablis because it's gonna blow your friggin' mind. Yeah, because it does. It's like it's like clean and minerally, and it still has like all that great apple quality to it. Because it's still Chardonnay, but it's not, and it's and sometimes, and a lot of times they're still oak involved. I think most times they're still oak involved, and people are like, "Oh, I just don't like oaky Chardonnays." I'm like, "You just don't know what you're talking about." That's what it comes down to. <laughs> I have that same conversation with Merlot. I'm like, "Oh my God, quit hating on Merlot." Yeah, it just depends, especially going full circle again, uh, back to Washington Merlot. Like that's one of the things that we do best here, and it's from the right producer, from the right area, from the right vineyard. It's it's killer. Yeah. And with, I mean, the other thing with Chablis that, that recommends it in addition to the, what you said is, you know, outside of a handful of producers, it's just not price-wise going to be anywhere near what you're going to pay in the Cote d'Or. I think, you know, uh, one of my, one of my revelatory wine experiences when I was relatively new was with some um, old uh, uh, Grand Cru white burgundy from, from the Cote d'Or. I, I don't recall the producer anymore, but from uh, the Chevalier Montrachet vineyard and being like, oh, wow, this is what like old, like, because I hadn't, I mean, I was like 25 or something. I hadn't had a lot of like aged white wine at that point. Um, and it was really pretty mind blowing that, that white wine could really age and, and show this kind of incredible complexity that I just hadn't experienced before. I think it's, it's fascinating. This is actually something that I think worth talking about too is uh, in, in a little bit of a pet peeve of mine that you see kind of talking, walking back between France and Washington or France and the West Coast or whatever is, you know, when you see a, a producer, you talk to someone, sometimes the winemakers themselves say this, sometimes it's, you know, PR people and stuff. And they're like, oh, you know, this is their, their Burgundian Chardonnay. And oh, I hate kinda, that. I, yeah. I just kind of want to be like, well, actually, like, if you taste a lot of different white Burgundies, like, there's a huge stylistic range and like there are definitely producers in Burgundy these days who make wines that tasted blind you might think came from you know the west coast of the United States and conversely there are obviously you know there are also producers I and mean, there's just so many different ways to do it Chardonnay as a variety is so malleable and so uh you know so kind of hard to pigeonhole without knowing a lot about how the wine is made and to some extent where the fruit comes from but it is a it's like a you know Burgundian in general both with with Pinot Noir for sure, but also with, with Chardonnay has become just this word to me that I, you know, I just can't. Your skin crawl? Well, like, it's just, it just, it's empty. It, it just, yeah. you know, it's, it doesn't. What does that mean? Like, it's yeah. so big. One of the things that I think drives me, like, 
I'm gonna drop an F bomb. It drives me off the fucking wall. Is when pretentious winemakers, and I'm thinking of one in general, and you might know who it is because we've talked about it before, but I'm not gonna say his name. When they say they reference, it's not so much like, oh, this is Burgundian that drives me nuts or Chablis-esque, like that doesn't drive me nuts. When you name like a producer and you think you're comparing your Washington Sauvignon Blanc to this epic producer, like, come come on, come Come back down, come back down and just describe what your wine is. Because most of the people buying your wine have no idea who that producer is. And they're not gonna spend $65 on your Washington Sauvignon Blanc. Nicole, did you have a question you wanted to ask or a comment? Or just, no, just. I think she was doing like preach. I got you. you. (laughs) She's just a fan of F-bombs, I think. Um, More of those. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, I guess we're just telling stories. So I feel like you and I have also talked about this. But on that question of sort of pricing and understanding the market and all that. We have, we have, I'll name names because I don't care. We've talked about the, the clips and wine, right? Have you and I had this conversation? Okay. Or did you try it? Were you there? No. What? Which one? Okay, so. Oh, their brand? Well, like, since they got bought by Chilato. I haven't, got... no. Okay. So, uh, this is like, you know, a little bit behind the curtain, but whatever. You will, Hopefully, you all enjoy this. If not, you know, my apologies. Um, the, uh, so they, Chilato Family Wines, which is a California-based wine company, purchased um, Clips and Vineyards, which is a, a very, very highly regarded vineyard on Red Mountain was in the family for a long time. And they, they decided, so the, the, um, now I'm blanking on the name of the family that owned it, but they, they never made wine. They just sold their grapes. Well, I can think of it was Patricia with the purple hair. Yeah, no, I mean, I can picture them, but I can't remember. Not her last name. Um, Great. Yeah. Nope, that's a- I got, I got really drunk at a party at their house one time. So that, I still don't remember their name though. Uh, anyhow, um, the, uh, they they sold their vineyard a number of years ago. The they were the, the founders were getting up in years. I think their kids weren't super interested in continuing to be grape growers, and so they sold to Trollato. And Trollato decided, you know, we're going to to make a we're going to eventually build a winery, and we're going to make an estate wine from this vineyard. You know, still sell some of the fruit, but make a wine. And they invited me and a number of other people to probably you got an invite. I'm sure you just had better things to do to come taste like the first vintage of this wine. And they had brought in their winemaker, one of their, you know, esteemed winemakers from California to, to oversee the project and everything. And what they did, and this is, this is to your point a little bit about comparing yourself to the greatest producer in the world, is we got a blind, we got three wines blind, right? One of them was, uh, 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 what was it? It was Lafitte Rochelle, so, you know, first growth Bordeaux. Dominus, which is a very highly regarded Napa Cabernet. And then their wine, you know, in some order. And their, I think, idea behind this was like, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna show you that this wine is comparable to these. And I mean, from my perspective and from the people I knew who were there, who were talking kind of, you know, not trying to be rude, but you know, you kind of can't help talking about it. So it was, it was very clear which one was there, was the Clipson wine. It wasn't like bad. It just was not on the level with those two. And fine, it's less expensive than those two, but they were trying to, but they're, but their pricing structure for it was essentially, it was going to be about equivalent in price with the Colcita Creek Cabernet Sauvignon, which is the most expensive wine in Washington, or at least, I mean, maybe one of the Cayuse wines is similarly priced, but it's, I mean, we're talking about the very high top end of Washington wine. And it was just this great illustration of like, this is the down, 
maybe downside to this, you know, kind of outside investment is, you know, I'm sure that they looked at it and said, you know, we think the pedigree of this wine is this, this level. It's still significantly less expensive than, you know, high-end Napa Cab or Bourgeois Bordeaux. But the problem is just like, there's too much quality Cabernet Sauvignon from Washington that's, you know, you know, half the price-ish. Mm-hmm. You know, you can spend, I mean, they wanted, that wine was gonna it's retail a for a fruit. Why are you charging so much? You're not paying anyone to grow it for you, or you're not buying that fruit. Like, yeah, well, I think it. I think it comes back to you know they they you know it's like in the California market. I imagine a sub two hundred dollar Cabernet isn't cheap, but it's like you know that's like in table stakes, right? That's just like kind of. But here, that puts you at the that you're putting yourself with a brand new project at the absolute top of the market, and yeah, you have a recognizable name behind you, but you don't have any pedigree as a winery. Um, just and so I don't know how that went. I, I have no idea. I, I, I haven't but seen everybody the wine. Wants, everyone wants to be with the, ju- the judgment of Paris, right? Wasn't that the, the bit? Yeah. The, yeah, like they want to be that that no name Washington producer that blows everybody out of the competition and the old world wine competition. Like that's cool and romantic, but that already happened. Right. Like, yeah, it's just oh god. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm so glad the sun's kind of going down. I <laughs> see. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's just like the more recognition Washington is getting is it, like, hopefully it's going to be a rising tide lifts all boats. But then there's people that are taking advantage of that and that they're just charging more. And it's yeah. like, like, hopefully we get to the place where we're able to charge x y and z on a regular basis and and it's because the fruit is that good because the juice is that good because the brands are that reliable um and we're getting there but we don't need why, why do we need to charge 95 dollars a bottle every vintage like if that's a spectacular vintage or it's a once in a lifetime collaboration or i don't know the blends spectacular something like that's just that sets it apart sure but I don't think that I don't think this industry needs to get to that point. But um, yeah, well, you kind of oh, make money, make money. Yeah, well, and you can kind of see the logic happening with Red Mountain, where you know part of what you see with Napa Valley is like Napa Valley is essentially totally like all the land that can be that can be legally and reasonably planted to grapevines is already there, yeah. and so because of that, there's no the only thing that if you want to you know, if you want to own vineyard land in Napa Valley and you don't already, you got to go buy it, right? And so that's inevitably going to just kind of keep bringing the overall cost of everything up. And Red Mountain in Washington has got to that point just about. It's almost entirely planted out at this point. I mean, not entirely. I think there are probably some some patches that could still be planted, but there's not a lot. And so there you start to see that that sort of effect where people who are interested in getting in or would, might be interested in getting in do really have to sort of you know, set a new bar for the price, right? They have to pay more than the last person paid to get in because there's no more available land. Um, but broadly for Washington, that's not true. And it's part of the reason why for me, like I, the wines from Red Mountain, I sometimes I, I can really love, but it's why I'm glad that there are so many other exciting places to look um, for, you know, whether whatever kind of wine you like, there, there are lots of exciting sources, whether there's some of these new ABAs that you mentioned, like Royal Slope, like, you know, Candy Mountain, like, um, uh, the 
what is it, the the burn of the column? What is it? That there's that one that's just like a mouthful and a half. You're right. It's like the burn. It is because I can think of the St. Michelle Saints wine. Yeah. Well, I think they're like essentially they're the only they're basically the only uh, vineyard or like a grower in that area. Um, I think I don't know. It's hard. To, it's hard to keep track of all these. There's um, yeah, there are a lot of these um, that are coming. The map keeps changing, which is fine. I think it's better, as you said before, to have more specificity when and where uh, possible to kind of give people something to work with. Um, I wanted to um, just ask you another question, which is sort of broadly related to, to Washington wine, but is also related to uh, just the state more broadly. Um, what else, what else in beverage alcohol is exciting here? Like, what are you into? Uh, not seltzer but everybody keeps doing it it's like really i mean whatever make your money make your money sugar is now no sugar is not now a malt this is so stupid it's so stupid malt can be a sugar eventually because that's what happens in the brewing process which come on just whatever yeah so the ttv and i are fighting based on that alone i don't know i'm like Sel yeah, Seltzer side, I actually enjoyed a couple brands, but and like one of my favorite breweries is about to release one, and I'm not going to say it yet, but I'm actually kind of sad and disappointed in them. <laughs> Just take advantage of a market. I get it. Make you make that money, honey. So, um, I'm always excited by beer. <laughs> so yeah, I know you. You were like, I think because of the weather, you at like four o'clock. We're like, can we talk about beer instead of like, I know. Today? I was like. like what if we change our topic to beer? Um, I know, because I'm like, the sun's out. Well, talk, so talk to us about beer. Most of these people drink beer, at least occasionally, maybe. Um, I mean, I don't know. There's nothing like new trend-wise happening, but um, I just swung by the SIP office because they were covering Hellas Lagers for the spring issue, and I took a bunch of those home with me. <laughs> um, those were really fun. I had a really delicious one from Wayfinder today. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I, I just like how, I like that, I like the diversity of beer, and I realized that, like, as a, uh, put me, like, one step ahead of being a casual drinker, and, like, as a, something that I want to have as a beverage is, like, almost always, at, like, a, what I call, like, a sandwich IPA. Like, I want a sandwich that's, I want a sandwich. I want an IPA that's going to, like, fill you up enough, you know? Um, like I want something that's toothsome and flavorful and hits all the notes. Like, I need my, I'm, I'm pretty, like, neurotically specific about my uh, hot bill. I'm, I like it to be a certain, I don't know. I like my C's, Cascade, Citra, you know. I get really pissed if it's, like, too much uh, Amarillo. I don't like that. It gets like cilantro for me, like, you know, which I like cilantro being, how people are weird about like cilantro being soapy. Uh, that's what that is for me. But I don't know. I, th I think that's actually one thing that's cool about beer trending in Washington state is like how on top of, and not just on top of, but how much we own and dominate the hop game. And that's really fun. Uh, seeing what's coming out because then we have two huge breeders uh, that do most, like, I would say 95% of the hop breeding in this country that are in, that are across the street from each other in Yakima, in the Yakima Valley. They're like in, in a smaller town around there, but uh, which is so cool because we get to see 
ABEF 9752, like that, <laughs> a hop variety or something like that, that's just a letter name because it's experimental hop and we get to see it in fruition in, in the form of a lot of beers from Yakima breweries and like trials and, and seeing what's cool and what tastes good and the characteristics they like. And I love that. Like uh, beer is just such a different world from wine in that it, it's not that it can be manipulated easier. It's just in, a, in an agricultural sense. It's just you can do so much tinkering behind the scenes more so than you can with wine. And so, but still have it be a fully agricultural byproduct. So I just, yeah. uh, I don't know, I, I love beer. I get real excited about it. Also, you can have it from, uh, I don't know, start to finish in like 25 days where wine yes. is more well, months. Yeah, but, well, that's what I was gonna say is like, you know, with wine, you get like one crack out of the year basically. And with beer, oh you can like come back to it. You can do, you know, you can do multiple series with, with just changing one or two inputs and, and really kind of, see how that affects it. I think it's, it's a lot harder to do that kind of iterative process in wine um, because you get so few cracks at it, um, you know, besides maybe some, you know, like maybe, you know, like I think you see winemakers sometimes play around with, okay, well, like for on something like Syrah, you know, what amount of whole cluster fermentation do I want to do? And so maybe I'll do a couple of different uh, trials at different percentages. But, but even then it's like, you know, you have so many fewer, um, you know, you get one, harvest one vintage a year and as you said beer you can do a new beer you know every three and a half weeks or something like that i'm wondering you know in the in the beer space you know you mentioned before aaron that uh, you know we still see seemingly more uh, continued you know uh, expansion new breweries opening why do you think it is that there seems to be kind of an almost endless appetite or thirst or whatever for for new breweries is it just that you know, if you open in a neighborhood, you will kind of automatically find yourself a, a, a clientele that maybe previously would have gone slightly further and now they have to go less far. Is that what it's about? 100, no, not 100%, but I agree. Like that is definitely the, that's the momentum behind beer versus okay. beverage is that it can be, it's, it's other than like rent of a space and actual equipment cost, um, like it's a real, I don't want to say it's relatively inexpensive, but in comparison to wine, it is for at least as the pro the product that you're buying to produce it. Um, but yeah, it's I mean you can completely rely on neighborhood support, and community support. Like it's that's why I don't know you've seen so many like garage breweries or something along those lines turn into a full like. I wouldn't say like macro brewery, but full functioning commercial brewery. So like, I, you I know, do you know that I rent, we're, we're in the process of moving and bought, we bought a house, but the house I've been renting for five years is the house where Drew Brew was built, was born. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Drew, nice. Drew owns this house. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, they're, well, they're not that commercial, but like there's, it's a lot of things starting to, I mean, most, most home, if you're a home brewer that goes commercial, definitely started in your garage you know so yeah, actually uh, uh, actually a shed I, I can or a shed yeah i can show you if you want uh <laughs> it's down it's down it's in our backyard i love the so uh my mom's not on here anymore but she was but uh my um because my mommy came on to support me today um i one of like i wouldn't say they're one of my favorite breweries but they're definitely one of my favorite like home brew to commercial uh, stories is uh, Skookum, which is up in Arlington. Okay. And they, they were, we, I mean, 
I was like 22 going there. They, it's, it was literally their house on a property in the middle of nowhere in Arlington. And we called it Beer in the Woods because it was legitimately Beer in the Woods. And they had like a 7 p.m. cutoff time and kicked everybody out and you, because it was a, a residential property and they had neighbors. And now they have, they have uh, distribution in Seattle area at top bars. Um, actually, their head brewers, the guy I went to high school with, like it's um, a really respected, um, pretty experimental brewery now, but they have a huge space now and it's big, huge warehouse space, big, huge ceilings. It, they can probably pack 600 people into their space now uh, by the Arlington airfield. And that's a, it's really cool to see stuff like that go from, mm -hmm. from being in someone's backyard and scaling up over the course of eight to 10 years to become something relatively commercial and especially something an hour north of the city to be able to get recognition and distribution in the city that competes too. So like that's, yeah. that's a cool, like not rags and riches story, but you know, I don't know, garage to commercial. So yeah. Uh, pulling oneself one up by oneself's bootstraps or something. Um, I, I, I hate to say this word cause I know you're, you a little chafe against it. What about, what about your, uh, your, 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 what about cider? I know you were off. I'll talk about cider. No, I love cider. I just, so Aaron, 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 literally, I, I don't get to say her rabbit. She literally wrote a book about cider. So this is an area of expertise. True. Um, I, I love cider. Cider, cider has a special place in my heart because of the people behind it. Like they, those are legitimate farmers. Like the, the, in, no other industry is quite like that anymore like there are definitely farmers in the wine industry but they they're also like businessmen and they then they're vintners you know and so it just it takes a different turn and insiders like hmm, there's trees and i'm growing them and i pick them sometimes and, and like that's there there's just like this uh down home mentality to it uh, that i love about it and there's just i don't know there's a lot of really incredible people involved in cider and it's still a really small budding community so that really an industry so that helps it stay that way so but i love cider i think that cider's also falling victim to the seltzer trend uh you're seeing a lot of light ciders out there which is fine i would rather see a watered down apple base than a sugar water ferment but you know i don't, I don't know um but it's a I don't know, I think that that's definitely been a trend in cider in the last couple of years, but um, there's still, like for me, when it comes to cider, I like I like my more uh, traditional routes, like Alpen Fire's always gonna be one of my favorites. They, they grow their own fruit, they buy some fruit, but they buy it from like-minded people and they have stuff, incredible things like um, red flesh, uh, uh, cider made from apples with literal red flesh on the inside and it produces this gorgeous pink color and um, I uh, Liberty out in Spokane is another one of my favorites. They, they'll do some experimental stuff, but they're, they're very true to their fruit, which is I think a really important thing for cider to really focus on the fruit. Um, I hate coffee ciders. Like that's probably one of the biggest tangents that you could take from cider focusing on the fruit is like put fucking coffee beans in it. Like what's wrong with you? So that's a tangent. Um, what else can I talk about for cider? Well, I'm just curious, you know, like, I don't know. It's not something that I've talked about in the in discourse before. So I'm curious if 
um, you know, I don't know what people's experience level or whatever is, but but I just wanted your you to just talk a little bit about you know what I would describe as being um, you know the difference between ciders that are made from culinary apples and ciders that are made from cider apples. I mean, obviously there's lots of differences, but but broad strokes. Yeah, I mean, that's... and maybe and maybe what the difference between those two kinds of apples is. I mean, it's it's comparable to to table grapes like Welch's grapes and in, in Cabernet, you know, like it's, it's uh, I probably not as distinctly of a difference to uh, like a novice palate, um, but it's cider fruit is, well, it varies, but it, it's complex. It's so much more complex. So if you bite into a red delicious, you're like, oh, this is juicy and kind of boring. And then you bite into a Kingston Black, which I don't recommend because your gums are going to hurt. It's tannic, it's acidic. You get the apple fruit, but you're just like, why am I eating this? Because you're not supposed to. You're like, you're supposed to ferment it. So it doesn't, it's actually like the difference between them on a raw level is even like it's more stark than table grapes and wine grapes because if you pop Cabernet off the vine in October, it's still going to be like juicy and ripe and delicious. Delicious. Yeah. You don't get that same sweetness when you pick uh, ripe Kingston Black or I don't know, Newtown Pippin or something like that. Like you, you, it's definitely something that you could eat. Like you wouldn't die, but you don't want to eat all of it because it makes your mouth hurt. So, yeah. uh, but that's what, that's what constitutes like a really good apple to ferment because it brings all of those harsh qualities on your mouth to the drink, which gives it texture and body and balance. And so to the, all the inherent fruit, in the apple, like that juiciness, the crispness, the apple, like textbook apple flavor is really balanced out with acidity and tannin in the traditional cider fruit versus um, this quality is really missing in a lot of, of uh, grocery apples. But I mean, sometimes some like Granny Smith is a sharp apple and that's uh, that that ferments okay. Like it, it tastes relatively complex. It blends really well, uh, but that's a regular table apple, so or grocery apple. But yeah, it's one of those things that like they're so uh, they're grown on such a small scale here in the United States that we don't really have the actual like grab it off the grocery aisle comparison that you would in in the UK. Um, but I don't know. It's cool if you have the opportunity, especially in like October. Um, especially markets like Met Market or PCC, they'll bring in a lot of like mixed use apples, like a Newtown Pippin or uh, Arkansas Blacks, another one. Those are all really good uh, cider apples, but that are mixed use. You can also eat them and it won't make your mouth hurt kind of thing. So, um, yeah. Don't you get excited in the apple section or is it just me? Well, I mean, it's funny because, you know, you we I think about this a lot because there's been a lot because Washington is also obviously a big apple producing state from a like, you know, grocery or culinary apple or whatever. And there's been obviously like, you know, every couple of years, there's like a new, a few new, I don't know if they're varieties or whatever of apples. And, uh, and I find them interesting to, to kind of run through, but obviously when they're breeding for, for that purpose, they're looking at different qualities than for cider production. Um, I, I think it's super interesting, you know, and it's taking Earl on a walk and he's behind me yelling, Mama! Yeah. <laughs> Bye, have fun! Um, the, uh, 
I feel like the um, the sorry, I've lost my train of thought. I totally about my son on his you own. You know, when your kids yell in your name, you're like, "I'm sorry, nothing yeah. else matters." Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> but no, what I was going to say is that one of the things about this this varying styles of cider, based especially on the source fruit, is like. And I think to, I'll just say, you know, to those of you who are out there who aren't, who haven't had a lot of cider or, or don't consider it, like, I've always been astonished when I try, you know, true cider is made from true cider apples, how much complexity there is. It's really the only, you know, there, you can certainly find very interesting complex spirits in beer, but it's a kind of, it's the only other thing that has the sort of, I don't know, it's kind of almost an indefinable characteristic that wine has of that kind of like mix of fruit character, because it's obviously made from fruit with with all this other these other things that go on the only other thing i've ever heard of i've never tried it i've been told that if you get um i guess you know wines made from like wild blueberries in like the northeast they have like similar levels of complexity to or or relatively high levels of complexity but um not a thing that's widely available here so well, i've heard that i've heard that too i was just going to ask you if adam callahan told you about that from do you remember him from Eater? I do, I do remember Adam. No, he, yeah. he is not. I, I read a preach big, about that. Oh, really? I read oh, a New York Times article about it a few years ago and I've always been yeah. curious, but um, never had the opportunity to get, like, you have to go to, like, yeah, you know, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. I Maine, think yeah. kind of getting into this stuff. Um, anyhow, so um, I think, you know, on the, before we kind of wrap things up here, for one, obviously, if you all have any other questions or comments, please feel free. Um, I was going to ask, Aaron, you know, we, you also have, um, this other facet of your work life now where you're working um, in the restaurant industry. Um, and I was just curious, like what, you know, what that is, like how you feel, like, or where, where you see things that are, uh, because, you know, you're more, honestly more connected to doing now than I am, because I've been out of the restaurant industry for a year now, um, thanks to COVID. So what is it, like, what are the, what is it like in restaurants these days? Since well, I haven't been what, in one. I remember when we were first talking about doing this, like, we talked for, like, 20 minutes about that, and we're like, wait, should we save this for the net? But, yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's so bizarre, because I think people are so excited to be dining in restaurants again, um, and I'm excited as a consumer myself. Um, I think that that there is, and I think that's what we were talking about the other day, there's a precedent being set, and I'm so tired of that word, that and, and pivot. Um, it's, there's something being set uh, for the future of restaurants because things aren't gonna be like normal, normal for a while. And so it's like, with restaurant design, do you, do you open a new restaurant nowadays, which is, it, I mean, hopefully there's not gonna be closures again, but it's a, that's a risk you take financial risk and brand risk and like do you open a restaurant now and when you do how are you building your interior like are you or how are you building your site period are you putting more focus on outdoor in case this is the next couple years and you need to be smart about that are you building all of your booths are you building booths i mean booths kind of went by the wayside right like and now booths are coming back because you can put partitions in them and are you, when you're building out your, like when, maybe when you're even from scratch, like deciding where to put your kitchen, are you keeping in mind the amount of space you need to keep between tables on the front of the house to keep social distance? And like, that's gonna, like, you're gonna, six feet between tables is gonna be required for 
probably a while. Like, so this is the thing, like if you were going to open up, like there's a um, super cute little space in Columbia City, which is super close to me. I'm in Georgetown in Seattle. And it opened up called Off Alley and I've been dying to go there, but they can, they are a tiny spot. And when they originally were going to open over a year ago, this would have been great and adorable, but now they can see two fucking tables at a time. Like, yeah. And you have two seatings a night. Like that sucks. Like they probably would have started out with eight tables and it was going to be really cool and really intimate and an incredible chef's menu and six courses. And now they're trying to do at least two turns a night and they're, they'll see six tables. Like that's awful. Like it sucks for them. And it's, it's just, yeah, it's just like, it's so, makes you be like, oh, world. Cause it's like, no one could have controlled this. And it's just, it sucks like and you hurt for so many of these small businesses but then also all the employees like i mean the the restaurant company i work for the hospitality group is medium minus sized it's like not it's not huge but it's not small we have 700 plus employees across three states and even the bigger brand like it's like it's hard to get people back in hospitality now on a on a employee side because they're like no, man, like I've been laid off twice. Like, how do I come back from that? So it's just, yeah. it's, it's hard. And like, I think one of the things that the hospitality restaurant hospitality industry is like rebranding itself being like, no, no, no. Like, remember we're an industry of choice. Like you want to come do this. You want to do this because you're passionate about food and beverage and we've got the steps. And I think that something that should have, I mean, maybe not the same time as teachers, teachers should have been vaccinated fucking eight months ago, but you know, like restaurant and Restaurant workers should have been earlier than so many other groups, and that's infuriating to me. Like this, I just like cursing. I've stepped up on my soapbox. They're like restaurant, like they. You're sitting there at your table eating your food, doing all the things that are terrible to do during COVID. I don't know. Why I did air quotes. That like there's particles in the air, and you don't have a mask on, but your server does. What that your server is less protected than a grocery store worker is. Like why wasn't this like a if we were reopening restaurants to 25% capacity a month and a half ago, that, that vaccine should have been available to restaurant or hospitality workers. Like they're, they're just as much risk, if not more than anybody else that the patient or uh, patron wouldn't have a mask on. So it's just, but they can get vaccinated on 31st in the state. So that's good. Yeah. But they come the fuck on. <laughs> I, I feel you. I mean, I think. I mean, I think that. A That's what you things. wanted. <laughs> sure, I, it, 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 it's it's not untrue. I think to the concept, to the point of of restaurant design. I, mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is to think about. You know, I think one one huge unknown is is when, you know, so many restaurants and, and it's less acute in Seattle than in some other places, but it's still pretty acute here in terms of people trying to fit as many tables as possible into a, into the space as they can because- I think that's gone. I don't think that's gonna happen anymore. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, so my, okay, so my, my little thing here, and I, this is maybe just me trying to see silver linings and things. I do think that a thing that really was unfortunate about what happened in Seattle dining pre-COVID was you had such an incredible proliferation of restaurants, mm -hmm. many of which were great, some of which were terrible, some of which were in between, that, the average diner, or even an invested diner, was only really interested in dining in a specific time window, right? People only really wanted to eat dinner between 6.30 and 8. And, you know, I saw this for working with Tom Douglas for years, you know, 
it became harder and harder for us in most of our restaurants to fill seatings at five, five thirty, unless there was maybe an early event, a, you know, a, a, a big sporting event, a concert, a, a show. Um, hard to see people after eight o'clock. You know, we at Dolly Lounge, we went from being open from five until eleven to five until nine because we just no one came in. You know, we you know, I mean, maybe until ten o'clock on the weekends in the summer, but you know, it just was no one wanted to come in and dine at nine or nine thirty, and you know. Seattle's not New York City. It doesn't have the kind of, you know, all night culture. But I think there's something to be said about a, a benefit that might accrue to everyone in some way if, you know, people who want to go to a, to the restaurant you mentioned, you know, I, I'm, I, I assume Aaron, you probably know Aaron Ticolvi, right? Um, who has Searle, Seattle. Yeah. Uh -huh. yes. Aaron's a friend of mine. We worked together on a few things in the past. And, um, you know, like he, they've been doing, they have outdoor seating and they've been doing like limited seatings during, you know, for the last however long with like, you know, he's very conscious about and conscientious about COVID. And, you know, it's like each table, they, I think he does two tables at a time. They have two, they have separate, you know, they have bathrooms that are like your dedicated bathroom. Like oh, they, wow. don't, they don't have like, um, like the whole, I think their whole service style is basically like, you know, the server doesn't really ever like, will only approach the table if people have masks on. Like they're, they're trying to be very, con he's trying to be very conscientious about that. Cause it's just him and, you know, it's like a, him and one other person basically. Um, but you know, a, a thing that has a, a benefit that's accrued to him is like, because you, because they do so few seatings, you know, like they have a, like a real wait list, right? They have people, like they book a month out and as a restaurant, like, you know, yeah. Would he, would he love to do three times as many covers a night? I'm sure. And I think as, you know, as things get safer, he will, they will relax some of that stuff and, and have more seatings. But I think he's seen that there's also benefit to being exclusive, right? To having people who want to come dine there. Because the thing that happened in Seattle too, that was so frustrating, and it's not just Seattle, but it fits into Seattle culture in a lot of ways, was, you know, like the people who would just kind of like make a bunch of reservations and then go wherever they wanted to, right? As a consumer, as a guest, you know, there wasn't a, a there wasn't really a cost accrued if you made three open table bookings and then, you know, at four o'clock that day decided where you wanted to go for dinner, but the restaurant has held that table for you. And, um, you know, most places don't charge a fee, you know, I mean, a few did. Um, but so like they became this whole thing where, you know, there were more, way more seats in restaurants than there were diners on a given night and bringing that back into a little bit more where seats might be at more of a premium, I think will be, will have some benefits to, to places, even if it also is hard sometimes because you do have to, you know, you might not be able to maximize profit in certain cases, but there's real benefit to being, to being something that people have to plan for, right? You know, it, it makes them then- It's FOMO. It, it, yeah. FOMO is a legitimate marketing strategy. Like yeah. it is, it's, it, people want, and they're like, oh, I can't get in. Well, okay, well, we'll plan it for our next date night. Like that's just, I don't know. That, that's, that's, that is a powerful tool nowadays. I think it's something that people should leverage, but if, if they need to, but um, yeah. I don't know. There's things on the uh, silver linings, but on the other end of that, like Bartel Corso on Beacon Hill, is my 
like top one of my top three favorite restaurants in the city and they never took reservations until COVID and now they only take reservations and it's like so exciting and for us like we I have a two almost two year old and uh we like to go to dinner early and he's a monster so we have like 45 minutes maybe and so we're like the ideal group like we come in we chug a bottle of wine we get seven courses we have a toddler make a huge mess it's embarrassing we leave and then they get a new table in it's like great that was an easy 150 dollars but like that it's stuff like that that and then i guess also in that but another silver lining to come out of all of this is you really see the local support and the restaurant support like you have your because you only go so many places if you go places or get takeout from so many places you have your places you support and i think that's something that's really gonna uh the restaurants that persevere are going to be the ones that do for good reason because people love them because they have high quality product because they're offering an, an unparalleled experience like it's all those things like it's so sad to see so many places close and zach i know you feel that on a on a hyper personal level like yeah. it's uh it's it's tough but then it also kind of shows how what brand shows what brands prevail you know like the ones that are really supported by the local communities so yeah and it and you're right it emphasizes the importance of that community connection and engagement and that in tough times you know you need to have that to fall back on but yeah um so yeah uh thank you aaron so much really appreciate it thanks everyone for being here